1: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Luke's English Podcast. Uh, In this episode, I'm talking to you about Japan. It's a special episode about Japan. Uh, Just before we get started, let me uh, remind you of uh, the sponsor for this episode, and that one is Spoken. Spoken is... um, a cool service that you can use to basically get uh, business English lessons on your uh, mobile phone. Um, uh, spoken will send you tasks uh, through uh, uh, messenger services like WeChat or WhatsApp Messenger. Uh, it's available across lots of different uh, messaging platforms. Essentially, uh, Spoken will send you tasks and lessons uh, through your phone like that. Uh, you do the tasks using the keyboard and with your microphone. Uh, you then get feedback from um, the Spoken team Teacher who will be in touch with you. It's a real person, sending you um, like um, flexible tasks that are um, sort of designed to help you specifically. Um, so um, spoken are offering various courses. And um, uh, they're offering you, my listeners, uh, 20% off all of their courses. So that's a 20% discount. And also two free lessons, which is a pretty good deal. I mean, you could try um, a couple of free lessons and see what, see how it is for you. And if you enjoy it, you can carry on. Um, but check it out. Uh, go to getspoken.com slash LEP. Uh, to get that 20% discount and those two free lessons. Okay, right then. So let's get started with this uh, episode and here we go. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. So welcome back to the podcast and welcome back to part two of this Japan special, uh, talking about uh, the culture and the way of life in Japan. Uh, From my point of view, this is just um, some of my reflections and thoughts about uh, Japanese life Um, from the point of view of a foreign person. Um, Now, uh, you should probably listen to part one of this episode if you haven't done so already. Uh, In that one, I started basically just by contextualizing it, explaining uh, about uh, my relationship with Japan and the reasons why uh, my wife and me uh, went there last week. And then I started to go through a list of some thoughts that I'd been writing down. I wrote a lot of this stuff down in the airport on the way back home uh, from uh, the trip. Um, in um, Narita airport we had a little bit of time waiting for the for the delayed uh, flight home there was a long delay which was really horrible in fact both flights but to um, Japan and back were really awful with like long delays um, we didn't get direct flights because they were too expensive uh, basically so we had to do transfers the first flight was transferred in Beijing the second flight was transferred in shanghai uh, so i did I did um I did actually touch down in China twice. So I visited China. Sorry, Chinese Lepsters. Um, you didn't really get a chance to, to to say hello to me. I was just stuck in the airport. Um, stuck in delays, like horrible delays, waiting to find out when the flight was leaving, uh, mainly due to the weather, I think. Anyway... I used some of that time to sit down and write down a big list of my thoughts and feelings after having spent another week in Japan uh, for the first time in 15 years. Uh, It was amazing. And so I'm going through that list of things. And in this one, I'm going to continue. And um, so this is a list of just thoughts and reflections on Japanese life and Japanese culture. Um, And um, so we're going to continue here by talking about the food and the drink and that's all i wrote down in my notes is just food and drink so i just i have to now just improvise some some thoughts about the food and drink in japan well basically of course the food is just delicious i mean it really is out of this world it's just it's just amazing. I mean, J- Japanese food is some of my favorite food in the world. And, you know, I'm talking about things like, you know, sushi and, sh- and sashimi and other forms like yakitori, which is like barbecued uh, skewers of meat. Um, yakiniku, which is like, you know, where you cook bits of beef on a barbecue on the table. Um, and uh, tempura and the different types of noodles, like ramen noodles, Uh, which is amazing, and other things like bento boxes that you have for lunch and even onigiri, these rice balls. Um, I mean, I don't know really how I can sum it up other than to say that it's just delicious. I think I'll talk more about the food when I explain some of the things we actually did on the trip uh, later in this episode, um, but you know I just wanted to say I love Japanese food, and I mean i don 't know why it 's so good i don 't really understand why it 's just so amazing, but it really is I mean every single meal we had was so great even even like lunches that we bought in the convenience store, like rice balls that we bought, and lunch boxes that we got in the convenience store or the supermarket we're really good. I mean, what's your secret, Japan? Why is your food so good? What, what is it that you're doing? What magic powder are you sprinkling over this food? I don't really understand it. Maybe it's something to do with the simplicity of the preparation or the freshness of the ingredients. I don't really get it, but it's, it's, it's outstanding. And I'll come back to the subject later when I talk about some specific foods that we ate when we were there. Um, uh, next item on my list is, is communication style and language communication style and language. Now, I am actually planning a whole other episode about uh, the way that Japanese people deal with English. So I'm going to do an episode fairly soon. I'm planning to do an episode soon. I mean, you know, I'm not making any promises, but, you know, I'm certainly planning it. An episode about Japanese people and English, and I'll explore some of that stuff uh, in that episode. But, um, um, I mean, one thing that makes you realise the difference between Japanese people and, let's say, English people. There is something in the communication style. Now, English people are uh, sometimes described as having an indirect uh, communication style. And I think it's, you know, it's pretty true. Uh, Certainly when it comes to, for example, uh, making negative statements, we tend to use a bit of ambiguity in our negative statements. And uh, the understanding is that, you know... uh, in communication with English people, there's a certain level of sort of um, uh, interpretation that goes on, especially with negative things. We don't always say the negative thing totally clearly. We tend to sort of make ambiguous, slightly ambiguous statements about negative things. And the understanding is that the person you're talking to is able to read those things and work out what's basically going on like i mean i think i explained before didn't didn't i when like my wife emails my mum and dad before we go to visit them okay so uh sometimes we go and visit my parents and my wife sort of suggests these things in in emails she's like my wife always wants to go to the castle we my parents live near a castle and my wife's always like let's go to the castle and my parents are basically like they don't want to go to the castle they just want to sit in the living room with us. They want to drink tea with us. And they just want to talk to us. They want to, you know, you know, just talk to us. They want to spend time with us. They don't want to go to the castle. But my wife in the email is like, how about we go to the castle at the weekend? And then my dad writes back something like, yeah, we could go to the castle, you know, the the castle. Yeah, we could do that. Uh, but also, we'd quite like to uh, spend some time, uh, you know, sitting with you and, and, and catching up. So we could go to the castle, but we'd also like to spend some time catching up. So my wife reads the email and she says to me, oh, look, great, we're going to go to the castle. And I'm like, no, we're not. We're not going to the castle. That doesn't mean that we're going to the castle. In fact, that means the exact opposite. That means we're definitely not going to the castle. Because that means we could go, but means we're not going. All right? Similarly, if you send an English person a text and say, hey, I'm having a party... Um, at my place on Saturday, uh, would you like to come? And the person goes, yeah, I'd, I'll try and make it. If the person says, I'll try and make it, that means they're not coming, right? I will try and make it, which means I will make an effort to come it does that's not a promise that they're going to be there so if someone says yeah i'll try and make it to your party that's just a nice way of saying i'm not going to come to your party so these are examples of sort of like english indirectness now japanese communication style is i think it's pretty similar and you get this kind of high context uh uh, culture communication culture which is where things are not always explicitly stated in fact that there is an understanding between people that the cult that the context sort of means that you don't need to say everything that 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 Japanese people are very good at sort of reading between the lines and working out what's going on without things being actually stated and now um I'm always aware of that, and I'm always trying to sort of think, oh is this what's actually going on here?" Am I misunderstanding or is this really what's happening? You know, it's a little confusing. Uh, I think when Japanese people speak to non-Japanese people, they understand that the the communication style is a little different. But I think among Japanese people, there's this kind of reading between the lines and stuff like that. And also, a lot of it is about uh, uh, preventing embarrassment and preventing difficulty and making sure that like you know, I think that Japanese people, when they communicate, they don't want to cause any trouble to other people. Okay, now I'm going to try and give you an example here of how uh, this manifests itself. In um, this manifests itself in sort of confusing behaviour for non-Japanese people. So when non-Japanese people speak to Japanese people, sometimes we find that Japanese people. Sort of have slightly strange behavior in the way that they communicate. And I'll give you an example. Now, um, you know, again, it's adorable. You know, we find it to be sweet and adorable. We find it a bit odd and confusing too, and sometimes frustrating, but mostly it's just great, really. You know, it's not a problem. But I'll give you an example, right? So, years and years ago, and this is a story that I've told people before. Um, and years and years ago, uh, when I was teaching English in London, I remember I had a Japanese student in one of my classes, and um, he arrived a little bit later after the other students. So the situation was that the other students were there in the class, and we'd already sort of spoken to each other and got to know each other a little bit. And this Japanese guy came in, and I remember meeting him before the class, and I, you know, and it's like, oh, you know, so I, I remember meeting him, and I think I'd read his file, so I knew some things about him. And um, so I uh, asked him some questions in front of the group. And it, he might have felt a little bit uncomfortable because he was suddenly being put on the spot. And he probably felt a bit embarrassed, like tr- having to speak in front of everyone. But, you know, I, I I always do that. I always make people speak and they feel uncomfortable. But and then and then they don't, you know, they, they relax afterwards, you know, you have to go through an uncomfortable, awkward feeling of like, oh, God, I'm being put on the spot, everyone's listening to me, yes, it might make you feel uncomfortable at the beginning, but you've got to get through that immediately, and then you start to relax, okay, so anyway, I ask this guy, like, oh, okay, so where are you from, he's like, I'm from Japan, oh, that's great, um, you know, what do you do, or oh, I work for a car company, oh, that's really great, and um, uh, where do you live in Japan, and he's like, oh, I live in Nagoya, which is Nagoya is is like a big city sort of between Kyoto and 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 Tokyo basically okay it's on the it's on the coast sort of between Kyoto and Tokyo let's say or between Osaka and uh Tokyo right uh Nagoya now i said to him okay you're from Nagoya where is Nagoya i said to him where is it now this question kind of floored him it kind of stopped him and he just he was his response to like where is so where is Nagoya? His response to that was to go, ah, uh, loca- location, ah, uh, loc- location, location, like that, and he kept saying the word location over and over again. Uh, so you know, oh Nagoya, that's great. Where is it? Ah, uh, uh, location, uh, location, like that, and he kept doing it, and uh, now. For me, it was like, "Why is he doing that?" That's a bit odd. Ah, Location, location. Uh, It's become like this legendary story uh, between me and some of my English teaching friends. This location, and now, uh, to be fair to to him, I think what was happening was that two things, right? Probably two things. One thing is that it was difficult for him to explain where it was. Okay, Uh, okay. It's probably it probably. He didn't know the English for like it's between um, you know uh, Osaka and Tokyo. It's a city sort of on the um, on the east coast of, of Japan. You know, like th- those phrases probably just couldn't didn't come easily to him. But also, and you know, other people I've spoken to about this have agreed with me on this one. Also, it could have been that he realized that the other people in the room didn't know any of the reference points. He probably thought, well, they don't know where it is, and I don't want to make them feel embarrassed. I don't want to say something that they don't know. I don't want to, like, put myself in a higher position, um, you know, talking about things that I know that they don't know, and so I'm not going to say it, you know. So he uh, he kind of paused and sort of you know this ah, location and he said that as a way of saying well it's difficult for me to say he basically essentially what location okay, that basically meant i'm it's too difficult for me to say or i uh, you know i'd rather not say where it is because they don't know where it is and i you know i don't want to sort of make myself i don't want to make them feel uncomfortable by me talking about something they don't know you know now you could say that I'm thinking about this too much. I'm overthinking it again. But actually, I'm probably not. Um, And, you know, other people I've spoken to, like including Japanese people, have agreed with me that, you know, there is this much thought that goes into a person's head in Japan when they're talking, that people do think about other people, they think about the context, and they manage the message that they're giving to an extent that they, they, they will you know, rather not say things that they think will cause confusion or embarrassment. Uh, And that includes referring to things that they think other people won't know. And, you know, it's just an example of how Japanese people will put the group first, you know, they'll, they'll put the collective consciousness first, and they don't want to be outstanding. They don't want to sort of mark themselves out as being different from the group. I think, now that, you know, that's one understanding of Japanese culture. I say that, that people don't want to mark themselves out as different. I say that. But actually, I know some Japanese people who are really original. I mean, like, for example, my best friend in Japan, who I spent a lot of time with last week, my, you know, he was really generous and he drove us around and, uh, you know, hosted us in Japan. It was fantastic. Now he is really unique and very different and, uh, you know, a, a, very much a, uh, an individual um but still even though people act like individuals there is also this sense of people being very aware of the collective sort of uh uh, uh consciousness and the collective culture so that's 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 why sometimes people when you ask them questions they will go uh ah, location location like that uh and make a big fuss about it um also you know as i said it's probably just because he didn't know some of the some of the language now after that when that happened i was like okay no problem um and i wrote some phrases on the board and i was like you know it's between osaka and tokyo or it's on the east coast of of japan and you know some language that could help him so you know we didn't we weren't laughing at him or anything i actually it was just part of the lesson um But, um, you know, you just get, you just see these examples of this sort of slightly ambiguous communication culture, also in the way that Japanese people um, don't like to say no, I think. I mean, this is the, I guess this is like a bit of a cliche or a stereotype that Japanese people don't like to say no. But, you know, it's, um, I think it's fairly true that, like, for example, if you say to a a Japanese person, do you want to go to the cinema tonight? And if they go, "Mm mm-hmm that means no thanks. But if they go, mm, that means definitely. You know, so mm is like, nah, no, don't want to go, or I can't go. And mm is like, yeah, I definitely want to go. Uh, yeah, anyway, it's pretty confusing. Uh, politeness is is very important in Japan, you know, respectfulness and politeness and so on. Um, in terms of the words that you hear in in, in Japan, there, there are these sort of constant words that you often hear, um especially like you know arigato gozaimasu uh hi hi arigato gozaimasu like which is like thank you very much basically and you hear that all the time especially if you're in a, a marketplace or something it's just constantly
0: <speaking in Spanish> it's
1: just this constant sound of aima like that sound all the time walking around like a fish market uh <speaking in Spanish> you know that kind of sound. Now, in Thailand, where I went last year, uh, walking around a market in Thailand, the sound is that kind of, um, that sound, which is what women say as a way of saying, I guess, thank you. I think that's what that means. Thank you or welcome. Right? And it's that kind of ka sound. And so walking around a market in Thailand, you just hear this kind of, yeah, somebody, care. somebody care, this yeah, sound. In uh, Japan, it's like, ai, ai, gozaimasu, like that. Aima. It's pretty weird. You know, when you don't speak a language, all you hear are just like the sounds of the language and just this sort of, it's kind of abstract, just noises, sounds. So Japan is like this sound of like, gozaimasu, gozaimasu lots of, Arigato uh, gozaimasu. Um, uh, what else? Sureshi masu. uh You know. Hmm. Uh, that, sound, that may sound weird. I don't know what you think of that. Also, in Japan, people, as well as saying these words, uh, like certain words, Arigato. Arigato gozaimasu. Arigato gozaimasu. Do ita shimashite? Simasen. Onagashimasu. Arigato um and you know, like uh Kawaii and uh Oh Sugoi and um you know words like gaijin uh choto hai, Choto Sumasen you know, words like this. Um Dekimas Dekimaska Um Des is a common word, it just means is, like uh saw this, which is like isn't it? Um uh Animaska uh, what, well, yeah anyway lots of lots of words like this, as well as these words that you often hear um you also hear certain sounds like Japanese people make certain noises now every person, every like language, every people, every kind of group of people makes noises in their language, like in English, we kind of go uh you know it's a lot of uh sort of noises. And things like that, you know, and in in, uh, in Spanish it's like eh, and in French it's like wo or oh, know womba you know, bomba, you know like these words in French, and in Japanese you get these words like these sounds like first of all like, the sound of like intake of breath like that, which is you know what Japanese people do when something's difficult or difficult to say like that, um also sounds like hey hair and hair is like a sound you make when someone has said something interesting or you've just seen something kind of interesting or surprising hair like for example uh for example david beckham and victoria beckham are going to get divorced hair right and the more interesting and surprising it is the longer the hair goes on you know like for example Oh, I don't know. What it. What could it be? Uh, like, hey, something really long would be like... Uh, oh, can I, th- I can't think of an example. Like, John Lennon isn't dead, and the Beatles are going to get back together. Hey, which would be kind of a big thing. And there are other sounds as well, like, huh, as well, and also, oh, <laughs> which is my maybe my favourite one. Oh, which is a bit like, uh, you know wow like kind of impressed impressed but can also be negative oh like can mean, mean like oh that's difficult or oh that's painful oh here. i mean it's just brilliant it's hilarious and wonderful and i love all the different noises that japanese people make as far as i know no one else makes those noises right i mean it's just japanese people it's brilliant um what else now, I talked in the previous episode about stuff like volcanoes and the possibility of Mount Fuji erupting, which would be pretty cat- catastrophic and disastrous. There are other weird and slightly scary things in Japan that I guess people don't talk about that much. And um, one of those things is, um, is you know, the, the, the nature, the power of nature, uh, natural disasters, natural disasters in Japan. It's something that when I certainly when I was living there and when we were there last week, it was something that I often would have in the back of my mind, which is like, what if there's a big earthquake? Or what if there's a tsunami? Or what if there's a volcanic eruption? Or what if there's a big storm? Or what if Godzilla comes and smashes the whole city up? Then what? Um, so natural disasters are something that sort of like sit in the back of your mind. Um... When I used to live in Japan, I remember there were earthquakes sometimes. I talked about it in the last episode, little earthquakes that uh, were actually kind of quite gentle. But then I did experience a few quite powerful ones too. I remember one particular time when um, one day I went to work in the morning and all my students were talking about this prediction. They were like, ah, Luku, have you heard of the earthquake prediction? Which is like my Dodgy Japanese accent. Not all my students spoke like that, but some of them. Nuku 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 sensei. Have you have you heard the news? Have you heard the news? Sorry, that's a fairly sort of rude. Word. Is it rude for me to do a Japanese impression? I don't know. Is it? Are you, do you find it funny, or do you find it? Uh, never mind. I, I'll stop doing it. Anyway, have you heard the news? And like a lot of my students were showing me these newspaper articles about how some scientist had predicted a big earthquake that basically in japan every what 70 years or something there's a big earthquake like a seriously big one one that, that, that that causes massive amounts of damage and they happen in cycles like every 70 or 100 years or something there's a big earthquake and i think the big one is overdue like it's due to happen at any time which is a bit unnerving but it's probably best not to think about it anyway while i was there my students were like luke have you seen this newspaper article, the big one, is is has been predicted. This scientist has predicted it, and this is the guy who predicted previous earthquakes. He was he's been right. He's predicted earthquakes in the past, and he's predicted a big earthquake, and it's going to come on this date. And they were like, you know, it's this it's this uh, Saturday the it was like the twentieth of September or something, and it's going to happen. It's going to be the big one. And they were like, look at this diagram. This shows you the epicenter of the the earthquake. This is where it's predicted to. To, to focus on. This is going to be the centre of the earthquake and they showed me the picture and it was like basically a map of my town and a red circle over my house basically. It was like my house was sitting on the epicentre of this predicted earthquake and you know I was like oh god this is serious What's what are you going to do? Are you, going to, are you all going to leave town or is everyone just going to evacuate the area and everyone's like no, no I don't think I'm going to do anything I'll just stick around you know no big deal. No one was like that scared and i was like but you know shouldn't we all be worried shouldn't we all be leaving town and they're like well you know there's not really anything you can do about it you know um you know some of my my uh students were like well it's probably a good idea to prepare like an emergency safety box which you keep in a safe place under a table or something in your apartment and you you can you know put dry foods and water and vitamins and and you know uh you know crisps and biscuits and stuff And so, you know, that evening I went home and I went to the convenience store and I stocked up on lots of biscuits and drinks and, you know, first aid kit and a torch and things like that. And I put them in a box under the table and, you know, I was like, oh God, I'm really worried. Should I tell my parents? I'm not sure I should tell them. And I got like, you know, I was was starting to panic. The date came closer and closer and, you know, I was thinking about my life and just thinking, oh God, is it, you know, what shall I do? No one else is doing anything. No one else is leaving town. I, I just have to carry on as normal, I suppose. And I, you know, I was, you know, looking at photographs of my family, thinking, oh God, you know, am I, ever, am I ever going to see them again? And then the date arrived, like the actual day of the earthquake arrived, and nothing happened. No earthquake. Whew. What a relief! And in fact, I started eating the biscuits from the emergency box. To be honest, I was like eating the biscuits. Like, oh, maybe it's not going to happen. The next day, no earthquake. The day after that, no earthquake. No earthquake. No earthquake. No earthquake. And then the following Saturday there was an earthquake, and it was a really big one. And I was at work at the time. I was sitting there at work, uh, waiting for a class to start, sitting in the teacher's room on the fifth floor of this sketchy, tall building, where I used to work in a town called Zushi, near the coast in Japan, not far from the epicentre of this predicted earthquake by this scientist, you know, the, the, the scientist who predicted it. Uh, and so I, the earthquake arrived, and the building started shaking. And it's very weird, it's very horrible, when suddenly the whole room starts shaking, it's as if a giant or something is shaking the building, it suddenly starts swaying from the left to the right, and juddering as well, juddering like that, and like all of the things in the building start shaking, like this. And, you know, there were like metal security doors in the building. The metal security doors were going... Like that. All the objects were shaking on the shelves and falling off the shelves and things. And, you know, the whole place was shuddering and moving. Like that, with things falling over. I was... Frankly, I was shitting myself, people. I was scared out of my mind. And I jumped up and I grabbed my phone... Because I thought I'm going to need my phone. I grabbed my phone and I didn't know what to do. And I just stood in the doorway because I remember once being told that you should stand in the doorway because it's a safer place to be. I stood in the doorway and I was like literally thinking, oh my God, this is it. You know, this is it. It's going to, this is the end. The whole place is going to collapse. So get ready. And it, it shook, the building shook for, I don't know, it was nearly a minute. It felt like about a minute, which is a long time for that to happen and it calmed down after maybe 30 or 40 seconds and like in little a few extra bumps but after about a minute it was all over and bloody hell that was a seriously scary experience really scary and I mean I don't know if it was just a coincidence that this guy had predicted a big earthquake and then this I mean this it this was not a big one I have to say, it wasn't the big one. It wasn't anywhere near the big one. It didn't cause damage. It just scared everyone, you know, because it made the building shake. But it it wasn't really big compared to, uh, you know, uh, other earthquakes that have happened and and stuff like that. And certainly nowhere near the the earthquake from 2011. This one happened in like 2003. Uh, So nothing like the one in 2011. No tsunami, none of that stuff. But it certainly shook me up a lot like literally, and also shook me up like sort of mentally. But there you go. Anyway, just um, so that kind of thing's in the back of your mind of like this low level fear. And, um, you know, also there are other things I mean like it can be quite a stressful place to live in just the sheer number of people living in such close quarters like you get big crowds of people uh, and you you know sometimes it makes you worried like you can get crushed or something and you know you can feel a bit claustrophobic especially when you're in the center of Tokyo and you think you know for, 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 for hundreds of miles around me it's just city it's just built up area it's just really difficult to travel it's difficult to get out and it can feel claustrophobic, and you can feel crushed by the whole place. So, you know, that's a bit frightening. And also, there are other things. Like, last week, while we were in Japan, the whole North Korean situation started to get a little bit out of control. It started to escalate, with, you know, uh, Donald Trump saying these things about how, you know... North Korea is going to get in line or they're going to be forced to get in line and we'll deal with North Korea and you know we're not afraid to deal with them and they apparently they sent military ships to the area and North Korea tried to do a missile test the missile test was a complete failure apparently it the missile exploded immediately on launch, so total failure. But North Korea were like parading their missiles and making these threats about how they were going to send missiles to South Korea or Japan. And you know, like, you know, it's pretty scary stuff. So, they, all these sorts of things are happening, but you know, just you you keep calm and carry on. As far as I can tell, generally in public, Japanese people don't really talk about it very much, which is just kind of strange. It's like this peaceful, quiet, cute atmosphere with these dangers that sort of feel like they're on your doorstep. Um, You know, and it's just something that I guess Japanese people don't talk about that much. There are also some other things that, as an English guy, seem a bit weird about Japanese culture. I mean, I, I talked before about the cuteness, and there was that... Blog article by that Japanese blogger who talked about how men find young girls attractive, and and I have to say that's a little bit weird. Like there's a whole kind of schoolgirl thing, which I don't really understand, and that is the sort of fetishization of schoolgirls in Japan. All right, now that's a bit odd. I have to say, I mean, I don't mean to judge, you know, and I'm for me, I'm just telling you how it feels and and just what I see. Uh, but you know you see a lot of sort of school girls are sort of sexualized quite a lot and you, you see it in certain magazines like some of the sexy magazines that you see on the shelves in the convenience stores you see these sexy girls who are dressed as school girls, and it's like oh wait a minute that's a bit weird so i don't really understand that i don't quite know where people stand on that whole thing and about sort of sexual politics and uh the kind of ethics and morality of, of sexual things. There seems to be a lot of ambiguity, a moral grey area with these kinds of things. And, you know, that's a bit odd for 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 me from, you know, someone coming from uh, England. It seems a little bit odd. But, you know, so there you go. There's no need to dwell on that stuff a lot more. Uh, no need to talk about it a lot more. But, you know, it's I guess it's worth mentioning every country has its dark side every country has its mysteries and things that we don't understand and you know again i guess that that that, it, that makes things a bit more interesting in japan because there are, there is there is so much emphasis on the cute childish things but also because of the slightly maybe it's maybe it's a religious thing that's what affects the ethics and the morality like in in the uk you know basically we're a christian country so our whole moral code was established in in, in the preachings of, of Christianity. And it's in the Bible and the commandments. And you know, it's quite dogmatic Christianity. It's like, you know, you must do this and you must not do that. And here are the lines. Everything's very clearly stated. Here are the rules. You've got to live by the rules. If you don't live by those rules, you will go to hell, you know. And, you know, other other religions are more dogmatic. But in Japan, which is a country that has i guess two religions that are sort of vaguely connected there's buddhism and you know we understand buddhism which um is uh a fascinating uh uh i don't even know if it is a religion or a philosophy way of life it is absolutely fascinating uh and there's also shintoism which is equally mysterious and fascinating and shintoism is a is sort of like the god of 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 things the 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 religion of of things that there are thousands of gods in the shinto religion and there are shrines to each god and you go and you pray to the shrines and it's all based on sort of uh 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 like uh luck and paying respect to nature like there's the god of the mountain the god of the 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 ocean the god of the 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 tree and you know uh, it's it feels kind of like ancient and like uh there's a lot of worship of nature and um but what there isn't is a sort of strict moral code from that religion, and I guess that's that is revealed in the slightly ambiguous sort of nature of Japanese culture and it it, it you know it makes you wonder where the moral lines are. you know a lot of that stuff seems to be quite vague you know, probably because I come from a Christian culture where morality is written down in the form of rules with very clear lines that we're all aware of, whereas in Japan it's, you know, it's quite different. And that, you know, that creates this sense of mystery and sense of possibility, and it's, it's very interesting. Um, the next thing on my list is Godzilla. Godzilla, which is that uh, monster from those monster movies. Now, there have been some Hollywood versions of Godzilla, but the real version of Godzilla is the Japanese uh version. I think the original Godzilla movie uh was released in the 1950s and since then there have been apparently more than 30, I think. Is that right? More than 30 Godzilla movies and Godzilla has sort of um kind of gone through various different forms, different incarnations. Uh, now, why am I talking about Godzilla? Now, for me, Godzilla is like uh, an aspect of Japanese popular culture. And I'm interested in popular culture. That's, that's what I'm into. That's what I studied at university. And so that's what I'm intru- into. I like looking at popular culture and seeing how that can see, seeing what that can tell us about uh, the way in which people understand, consume and express their lives. Okay, and what does Godzilla tell us about life in Japan? Uh, What does it represent? Now, um, before coming to Japan, just the week before going to Japan, my brother was staying with me in Paris. And we watched, uh, on on TV, we watched the new Godzilla film. Now, not the, the Hollywood version directed by Gareth Edwards from a couple of years ago, but the more recent Japanese one, which is directed by Hideaki Anno and Shinji Higuchi, okay? And it's, uh, I guess, in Japan, it's called Shin Godzilla. Shin Godzilla, which means New Godzilla. And um, so, Shin Godzilla, it's it's actually a really good Godzilla film. If you get the chance, you should watch it. Uh, I think it's Shin Godzilla uh, in in uh, in in America or in in English, it's called Godzilla Resurgence, okay? Godzilla Resurgence or Shin Godzilla, and I really enjoyed it, okay? Now, basically, the plot of Shin Godzilla is that suddenly, one day, the authorities uh, discover that there is something weird happening in Tokyo Bay, okay? Something weird's going on. Uh, There's a weird uh, presence in the bay, and it takes the form of like steaming bubbling water in Tokyo Bay like um the water is boiling hot steams coming out and they investigate this and they realize that this is moving slowly towards uh Tokyo city coming into the bay and then a tail a weird snake like tail comes out of the water okay now the authorities don't know what to do they keep observing it uh but they don't quite know what to do about it and then the monster reveals itself, and it drags itself onto the land. And basically, it drags itself from the ocean onto uh, Tokyo, uh, into Tokyo Bay, into the city. And it's like this weird creature. It looks like a lizard or a snake with a long body and a weird undulating skin and a long tail. No arms or legs, just this kind of weird snake-lizard thing with big eyes and uh, a big sort of protruding uh, uh, like face. It's really weird and honestly really scary. And it starts to crawl through uh, the streets, destroying buildings and causing a big tsunami. As well, and watching it, what was interesting was it reminded me of video footage of the the, the, the effects of the two thousand and eleven tsunami. Now we all watched those those video clips uh, on TV and on the internet of like the destruction caused by the tsunami rushing inland building up, you know, carrying with it all these, this, these objects and, and stuff and damaging uh, so many things. Well, this is what the, the, this monster does as it comes in. It sort of just damages things. Now, this is like a, a, an emergency situation, but the government uh, are really slow in reacting and in fact, the, the the government like are having meetings, and there are so many people in the administration, and so many different levels of authority, and like no one is in charge of the situation. Everyone's just discussing it and uh, like um, getting. Uh, getting uh like opinions from other people at higher levels of authority and basically the whole decision making process is really inefficient and it's sort of really it's about the way that the government is unable to uh respond to the crisis quickly because of the inefficiency in the, the the government system and the levels of authority and all the hierarchy and so on you know it's like really inefficient like one guy asking another guy for permission to ask another guy for permission to ask a question and then the answer is take is is you know everyone's got these different opinions and it's like really inefficient meanwhile this monster is like causing destruct- destruction and havoc and crawling into Tokyo destroying buildings then it stops in the middle of the street the monster stops and it's really weird monster it's got gills you know like gills on a fish you know the those lines on the side of a fish and the gills are like producing this weird red liquid which is pouring out it's really freaky and weird and it's got this these big eyes and the the monster suddenly the flesh of the monster suddenly seems to like glow like it's hot like molten lava and the the skin goes really hot and starts producing this 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 lava and then it goes the the monster raises itself up onto its hind legs and gets really tall and it suddenly starts to go through this metamorphosis and these legs sprout out. Like these legs come out and these hands come out and like the monster's neck it, it, uh, lengthens and its head changes shape and it starts to resemble the Godzilla that we know. And it's like, you know, it, the skin hardens, it goes black and it turns into this, like this... Like Godzilla, like how we know it. And uh, the government can't react. The army are like ready to attack it. You know, like they've managed to get helicopters with missiles and they're ready to attack, you know, and, and they have a chance to destroy it but they don't do it they you know they like no no they call off the attack because they're worried that they're going to uh, injure civilians there are some civilians in the way and so they don't strike and they they miss so many opportunities to destroy it and and to finish it and um and because of their sort of inefficiency and their their lack of uh, effectiveness uh, the monster comes back to life after this metamorphosis and it's even more powerful and dangerous and it then plunges back into the water and disappears OK, then the government are all, everyone's like confused and they don't know how to deal with the problem. The monster comes back then, comes back, but it's grown in size. It's much bigger and it's become like exactly like the Godzilla that we know with, um you know, these big legs. And it's, it looks a bit like a sort of kind of a, a dinosaur or something, but with these amazing diamond shaped spiky fins on its back and along its tail. And the monster comes back into Tokyo and this time the army decide to try and stop it. And uh, I mean, it, it, it stunning scenes, really, really amazing special effects and shocking images of the destruction to Tokyo caused by Godzilla in this movie. And there's one particularly uh, sort of shocking moment where Godzilla suddenly starts to breathe out this acrid black smoke, and this acrid black smoke is pouring out of his his mouth, and it's all mis- mystery. We don't know what Godzilla is. We don't know where it comes from. All we know is that this hideous monster is just wreaking havoc in Tokyo, breathing this hideous black smoke out of its mouth, and the smoke is pouring down into the streets, and the streets are covered in this black smoke, which is pouring through the streets, and then suddenly the smoke turns into fire, and just. All of this red hot fire envelops all of the streets. It's the fire uh, comes out of Godzilla's mouth, and it's suddenly everywhere, and it's just fire everywhere, burning the entire city. The whole city is on fire, and the the flames coming out of Godzilla's mouth intensify, and his mouth opens wider, and if they the flames intensify so much to the point that they become like a beam of pure energy, like. A like this high pitched beam of pure energy right and um uh meanwhile uh the army i think it's the american army at this point are trying to fire missiles from um stealth bombers in the sky so the bombers are flying high above godzilla and they drop a bomb on godzilla the bomb hits godzilla i think and it suddenly makes him really angry and he uses the energy beam and destroys the planes in the sky more planes come. And, you know, in the meantime, Godzilla's energy beam is, like, cutting through the, ci- the city like, like a hot knife through butter. You know, as Godzilla moves its head around, it, like, chops buildings in half. I mean, it's amazing. It's really impressive. The army sends more missiles down from the sky. And Godzilla then, like, it's, his whole back glows white. And these energy beams come flying out of his back. And destroy all the missiles as they fall through the sky and there's just like these lines these white lines flying out of his back i mean it's just really weird i I don't understand it really it's just so odd so strange and so sort of powerful and disturbing uh, that this weird monster with all of these amazing powers and essentially that the film goes on and eventually they find a way of 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 stopping godzilla and they kind of sort of essentially kill him uh but when they they sort of stop him, I don't really understand it. They, you have to watch the movie. But when they've stopped him, like the aftermath of of it is like all this destruction, and also you see some shots of Godzilla, and he's very mysterious because like there's one bit where they chop off one of the the fins on his back, and the 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 fin starts growing into it starts growing a body, and it becomes like another Godzilla. And you know they learn that they have to. They can't blow it up because they risk... If they blow him into pieces, they risk creating lots of other Godzillas. So it's like this really weird force of nature... Godzilla, this incredibly destructive force of nature. Now, what does Godzilla mean? What is all of this about? And what does this tell us about Japanese culture, if anything? I mean, one thing it tells us is that it's an incredibly inventive uh, monster movie. I mean, it's amazing, uh, incredible special effects and like this incredibly characterful monster. In a sense, the monster, although it's so destructive, after a while, you start to kind of get a bit of sympathy for it when the army are trying to kill it and Godzilla's just reacting and defending itself, you start to feel strangely sympathetic towards Godzilla, which is also interesting. So what is Godzilla all about? Well, going back to the original Godzilla, the original Japanese Godzilla from the 1950s, as far as I understand it, Godzilla is basically created by nuclear tests that were done in the ocean. So I think that's the origin of Godzilla. But essentially, like the US Army, I think, were doing nuclear tests in the Pacific Ocean, not far from Japan. In fact, there were some uh, real stories of how fishermen, Japanese fishermen in fishing boats got exposed to radiation, the fallout from nuclear tests by the the US Navy in Japanese waters. And, you know, this is the sort of thing that was in the news in the 1950s, plus also the after effects of the uh, atomic bombs in um, Hiroshima and um, Nagasaki during World War II, at the end of World War II that japan suffered the fallout the radioactive fallout of these events and i think it found its way into the sort of the psyche of the japanese people and i guess that godzilla represents this he represents the destructive um uh mysterious uh frightening power of the the nuclear uh of nuclear energy you know that it's from the nuclear bomb and from nuclear tests, and the effect that this has on nature. That I think Godzilla is essentially a mutated uh, life form, like a lizard or some sort of creature from the ocean, mutated by uh, radiation from from nuclear tests, and it com- it forms into this hideous monster with nuclear power. You see, because Godzilla actually um, Godzilla consumes nuclear energy. Uh, that's how it powers itself. So it really feeds on nuclear power, and it it comes from nuclear power. So really, it's a symbol of of that. You know, he represents the consequences of nuclear testing on nature, or the destructive power of nuclear weapons in Japan, or simply the vast destructive power of nature itself. Because at one time or another, Japan has been subject to massive levels of destruction from either natural disasters or, tragically, uh, nuclear weapons. And you see this in Godzilla. The imagery of Godzilla setting fire to Tokyo sort of reminds you of the fact that you know Tokyo burned uh, as a result of America's bombs during World War II. Uh, now, the, the nuclear attacks uh, are obvious, of course, but there, there are also nuclear tests by the U.S. Army after World War II. Uh, and also that the metaphor of natural disasters is easy to see as well the 2011 earthquake and tsunami which affected fukushima's nuclear power plants um you know caused lots of scenes of destruction that we saw on television and they are sort of similar to what you see in some of the godzilla films and really sort of godzilla represents all of that it's it's he is the embodiment of the power of nature and the power of nuclear energy and how sort of japan Japanese people are sort of at the mercy of this power it's kind of on the doorstep at all times it's it's mysterious it's impressive and it's also sort of um it, it, yeah it's it's impressive you know it it demands your respect as well you know and it's interesting uh, that Godzilla has been actually accepted as a sort of mascot in Japan now that they they love Godzilla you can get Godzilla toys. Godzilla is like an icon in Japan and they 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 love him. I mean, the, in the first film he's uh you know, destructive monster, but in the later films Godzilla becomes a sort of protector, protecting Japan against other monsters that uh you know, are coming to to destroy the place. You know, so I mean, you know, in Japan they love Godzilla and he's a sort of protector, which I see as sort of Japanese people owning this destructive power turning it into something positive turning it into something uniquely japanese and turning that whole sort of feeling of being subject to nature and turning it into something uniquely japanese in the same way that like mount fuji represents this massive potentially destructive thing but it's become so important to the japanese heart And it's like a symbol of Japan now. You know, I don't know. I don't really claim to understand it all, but I do think it's interesting. Um, And also the way that the film portrays the government as as being very inefficient and unable to make decisions quickly. You know, that's a a criticism that was levelled at the government, um, you know, uh, after the Fukushima situation you know, uh, all these people at different levels of status, all asking for second and third opinions, asking for approval uh, from uh, from above before making a decision, uh, you know. So, eh, just interesting, it's, to an extent, a bit of satire, uh, and also just a sort of impressive monster movie that may or may not represent something else, something deeper about uh, uh, the Japanese psyche. Um, again, you know, I ask you to tell me if you think i'm wrong about this and japanese listeners if you you know let me know if i'm if i'm you know uh not on the money on any of this stuff uh, i'm as much as i'm talking about this i'm also looking for answers you know i'd love to know your thoughts on this stuff am i thinking about this all far too much or is there something in what i'm saying let me know and you know there is a lot of mystery that's part of my fascination with japan there's a lot of mystery i don't have all the answers about the place there are lots of things that i don't understand you know i think of all the sort of sliding doors the silence the shadow the ninjas the ambiguity of the of the religious aspects of life the 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 the, the, the things in japanese history the the, the sort of Uh, Unknown uh, moments in Japanese history The weird things in Japanese cartoons That I just don't understand And simply wondering what Japanese people Are really thinking Behind their exterior Which is sometimes hard to read And the kind of polite manners of Japanese people Part of me believes that there is just Open space inside people Which is a kind of a peaceful place Where there's no judgement Where there's no dogma Where there's a kind of natural balance Like the space between rocks in a zen garden You know uh, but maybe i 'm romanticizing it a little bit. I expect Japanese people are just as mysterious as anyone else, really, because ultimately, who does understand the secrets at the heart of the human soul uh, and If you analyze any culture, then you know it 's going to be difficult to understand. Um, one thing I can say is really cool and moving is friendship i 've made friends with some Japanese people in a more sincere way than many other people I've met. And I've had moving connections with Japanese people that I don't tend to have with others. I don't know why. My Japanese friend, the one I told you about, my best friend in Japan, for example, he said some very moving things to me on my wedding day uh, because he travelled, him and his wife and his his son, travelled all the way to France to be there for my wedding. And on that day, he said some very moving things to me some deep Japanese stuff, some mystical Japanese stuff that was really moving. And also on the day that I left Japan, um, he said some other very moving words that seemed to come from some deep place of ancient Japanese wisdom. Uh, it's amazing. You know, it's like, you know, Yoda stuff, basically, you know, Yoda level, uh, deep ancient Japanese uh, mystical wisdom. Um, and just the friendship, you know, it's uh, it's touching that you can travel to somewhere completely different and make friends in a sincere way that cuts through all of the differences in culture and it you know that's very moving isn't it it is yes um, I realized that I need to come on to the question of what I did. What did we do in, in Japan? Because that's the third question I wanted to deal with. Can I fly through this really quickly? I think I can, you know. So, what did we do? All right, here are the basics of where we went and what we did. Basically, we started in Tokyo, went to Kamakura, and then went to Kyoto. All right, so we, um, um, oh, like, uh, first. Uh, first night was spent in in Tokyo, you know, we arrived at the airport. Our friend uh, met us at the airport and delivered us to our hotel, which is a place near uh, Asakusa, which is sort of uh, in a central part of, of Tokyo. And our first night, we were really hungry. And so we went to a sushi place for dinner just a normal sushi restaurant. My friend was like, there's a convenient place, it's open late, let's go there. Just a normal sushi place. We went in there, absolutely mind-blowing sushi, just (laughs) head exploded with how delicious it was. Now, we eat sushi here in France whenever we can, and it's, you know, sometimes it's very good here, but just nothing compared to the level of quality. I don't really, again, I don't really understand how good it is, but it's like really sort of melt-in-the-mouth just head explode level goodness and beer as well. Just, I love Japanese beer served in a freezing cold glass, uh, really nice, refreshing, dry Japanese beer. Hmm. It's so good. And I can drink it until the cows come home. Um, the next day we drove to Kamakura, which is a town near where I used to live um, in uh, in japan and it 's a lovely little place a peaceful place, very picturesque There are hills on the sides there 's a there 's a beach um you know on the on the bay there and it's a lovely, peaceful place. We, we drove to Kamakura. On the drive, we saw the Tokyo skyline, which is an amazing uh, skyline. It's very hard, really, to actually see the whole Tokyo skyline. It's such a big city. Um, but we saw some of the big buildings and things. We arrived back in Kamakura. First time I'd been there for, for years and years. And my immediate feeling was like, ah, oh, Kamakura, Natsukashi. Now, natsukashi is a Japanese concept, a Japanese word, which is difficult to translate into English. It's interesting that that there are some words that express concepts and feelings in some languages that we don't have in English. And natsukashi is one of those things. And basically, it expresses the feeling of nostalgia or feeling of like remembering something that really takes you back to, to a time in the past. Like, for example, if I smell the smell of Star Wars figures, that plastic that they use to make Star Wars figures, ah, Star Wars, ah, Natsukashi, which means that it makes me feel like I was a little kid again. You know, it really brings you straight back to that moment. It's like that, Natsukashi is that feeling of like, ah, good old, you know, good old Kamakura, or wow, it feels great to be back. So lots of that feeling. Cherry blossom in the hills, Beautiful uh, 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 views uh, from the hilltops. And uh, my friend uh, invited us to his house and we uh, had tea with him, his wife and his son. And it was just lovely to see them. Very peaceful, sitting there, drinking the tea, looking at the view and just sort of resting a little bit. That evening, we had dinner in a, in, a, in a restaurant called Match Point, which is a lovely little restaurant in Kamakura that does like Japanese curry. Delicious. Saw some of the people I used to know, some of my old friends. It was really like explosion of Natsukashi. It was amazing. That evening, we did karaoke, of course, because you have to do karaoke if you go out in Japan. And karaoke is amazing. It is absolutely brilliant. What is special about karaoke? Well... Uh, and I say karaoke, that's how we say it in English. In Japan, I understand it's like karaoke or something. What's special about it? Well, you know, in England, for years, karaoke was this thing that you did publicly. Like you go to the pub or a bar and there'd be a karaoke machine and you'd go up and you'd sing your song in front of everybody, even people you don't know. Well, in Japan, it's not like that. The way it works is that you book a little room You get a private little room where you and your friends go and there's a big karaoke machine and you just spend, you know, a few hours in there having a party. It's the perfect way to have a party uh, because it's private and you can just have loads of fun. If you've seen the movie Lost in Translation with Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray in Japan, in Tokyo, there's a scene in there where they do karaoke. It's like that, basically. There are whole buildings in Tokyo devoted to karaoke, tall buildings that are just full of karaoke rooms. Okay, so you might be out in Tokyo having a few drinks and it's like, let's go to karaoke. And you literally just go into the street and there are usually like girls in the street who are like the karaoke room dealers. And you speak to them, you book a little room, you go to the building, and usually there are like loads of drunken salarymen in suits, hanging around or pouring out of the building drunk. They've just done karaoke. You get into your room. It's probably somewhere on like the ninth floor of a big building or something. And you're in the room, you install yourself in there. They actually bring beer and food direct to the room. It's amazing. Okay. Uh, there are You can just call on the telephone. Yeah, we'd like four beers, please. And they just bring it to the room. I mean it's it's just a dream come true isn't it um and then there is a computer database with like thousands of songs on it they've got everything you know all your favorite songs are in there and everyone becomes a performer with their favorite song so you choose your favorite song and you program it into the computer and there's this huge karaoke machine with a big screen and big speakers and microphones And it doesn't matter if you can't sing because the machine helps you to sing. You know, they have special effects like reverb and echo effects that basically make you sound amazing. And, you know, some people are brilliant. Some people are just genuinely brilliant singers. Um, You know, but even some people can't sing. It's still really fun. Everyone kind of comes out of themselves and you perform and you have a lot of fun. It's just you and your friends. And, you know, The favourite songs get everyone in the moods, and singing is amazing fun. If you spend two hours singing your heart out, it really is just wonderful fun. And the videos on the machine are hilarious as well, because, you know, you plug in, put in a song, and there's just some weird video, uh, which has totally nothing to do with the lyrics of the song. Usually, it's like a footage of some couple from the 90s, like on a date in some random city. And while you're singing, you know, some completely unrelated song, um, often the lyrics are completely wrong as well. You know, you talk about misheard lyrics. Well, the misheard lyrics in karaoke rooms in Japan are often hilarious. You know, they often get them completely wrong. And we spent, you know, several hours singing lots of British pop and rock songs like David Bowie and Oasis. Like, my uh, my Japanese friend loves Oasis. And we always sing Oasis, which is just great stuff for, like, absolutely he's pouring your heart out you know tonight i'm a rock and roll star you know you can really put your heart into it um so uh, also my japanese friend dances like jarvis cocker from pulp which is absolutely hilarious uh you know uh, he's he's he describes himself as a plastic gallagher plastic gar- Garaga, plastic gallagher which is like plastic gallagher which is like he's like a fake liam gallagher uh, it's very funny. Uh, that night, we stayed in a guest house in Kamakura, a lovely, charming little guest house made of wood, just like a really lovely sort of natural wooden guest house. The next day, we spent the day in Kamakura, walking around, visiting temples and shrines, uh, visiting the giant Buddha statue, which they have on the hillside in Kamakura, uh, cherry blossom everywhere. We had noodles for lunch. We visited a, um, uh, a temple called Hoku- Hokuji... Uh, temple, which has a bamboo forest, which is incredibly atmospheric, um, we drove to uh, the beach uh, at Hiyama, which is nearby, and there we saw the sunset at the beach with views of Mount Fuji in the distance uh you know and just incredible that evening, we went to a Yakitori restaurant. Yakitori is uh, absolutely delicious. Uh, delicious, delicious Japanese food. It's like little wooden skewers and they stick like different types of meat on it. Usually it's chicken, different types of chicken. And at this yakitori restaurant, which my friend assured me was like one of the best yakitori restaurants in the whole country, and I believe it, there was this guy, this yakitori chef, leaning over the yakitori on this charcoal barbecue in the middle of the restaurant with a bar around it and like, you know, about 10 people sitting around the bar. And the barbecue in the middle of the bar And this guy, this chef, was like this punk, like a Japanese punk with long hair and loads of piercings in his ears. And he was leaning over this barbecue all the way over, like really painstakingly paying attention to every single yakitori on there. And we ordered loads of chicken yakitori and loads of beer. And it was just the most delicious thing in the world. I mean, just succulent, melting-in-the-mouth chicken, incredible flavour. And we were so hungry that after that, we went to another restaurant and had another dinner um that's how like how much of a feeding frenzy we were having taxi ride back to the guest house in a pristine taxi uh with an automatic door the door just opens automatically you don't need even need to open the door you flag the taxi down it stops and the door just opens and closes automatically uh next day we took uh the shinkansen the bullet train to kyoto Um, And the bullet train is incredible. It's like this amazingly engineered uh, uh, train that travels at high speed. And the thing looks like a space rocket. It's amazing. Um, And uh, so we took the Shinkansen and we ate our our Japanese bento boxes on the the train. These are these lunch boxes that you can buy in supermarkets and stuff. We arrived in Kyoto. Now, Kyoto used to be the capital of Japan. It was the capital of Japan Japan during many important periods and was also the base of Buddhism in Japan as well. Uh, And so there are loads of shrines, Buddhist temples and Shinto shrines there uh because it was such an important place for many years it's impossible to see everything in kyoto in just a couple of days um we ate more yakitori that evening and had a lovely stroll by the river in the dark with the cherry blossom in the dark it was really really atmospheric Uh, The next day was our Kyoto Shrine Day. We had an early start and we visited a few different temples. We visited the Ninnaji Temple, which has uh, beautiful rock gardens and pools and tons of cherry blossom everywhere and interesting buildings. Uh, Ninnaji Temple was the head temple of the... uh, It is the head temple of the Omuro School of the Shingon Sect of Buddhism. So it's like an important Buddhist uh, centre and was founded in 888 by the reigning emperor of the time. Various interesting buildings include the Goten, which is the former residence of the head priest in the southwestern corner of the temple complex. Uh, Built in the style of an imperial palace, the graceful buildings are connected with each other by uh, by covered corridors, which feature elegantly painted sliding doors and are surrounded by beautiful rock and pond gardens. It really is like the classic Japanese stuff. Then we went on to Ryoanji Temple, which has this amazing zen rock garden. I don't know if you've ever seen those. These zen rock gardens that feature a number of rocks carefully selected and placed in, uh, in a sand pit. And the sand is then raked and made to you know, arranged in these really nice lines. And the rocks are, you know, put in certain positions so that you sit in front of the rock garden and you can stay, uh, you can stare at the garden. And it helps to put you in into a meditative trance because the garden at Rio Enchi Temple is so long that you can sit in front of it and you can never see the entire garden from one position. So the garden just occupies your vision, like your peripheral vision is it occupies all of your vision. And these forms, these rocks are placed in certain locations and they form together to create this perfect balance, like this natural balance. And it's supposed to help you achieve like a a meditative state. Um, And there are 15 rocks in the garden, uh, but you, you can't see all of them from any one position. So it doesn't matter where you stand, you can never see all 15 of them. The idea is that once you achieve enlightenment... Then you can see all 15 rocks. Uh, It's absolutely beautiful. Um, Then we went to uh, King Kakuji Temple, which is where they have the Golden Temple, which is this beautiful uh, square structure sitting um, above a lake, above a pond. And there are these amazing ponds with little rock gardens and bridges and goldfish in the water, you know, huge carp in the water. And the temple is uh, covered in golden leaf, absolutely amazing to look at and it's reflected in the water absolutely amazing the only thing about these temples the only bad thing is that they were so crowded just crowds of tourists walking around so you know it's it does spoil it a little bit the, the number of people um we had lunch at a convenience store with some lovely rice balls just eating rice balls which are like the japanese versions of sandwiches and then we traveled across town to ginkakuji temple which uh, has this amazing sand garden, another Zen garden. This one is made of sand, like this kind of rough sand um, arranged in these amazing shapes. And at the end of the garden, there is this sort of replica of Mount Fuji. It's like this sand. I don't know how to describe it really. It looks like Mount Fuji, but it's perfectly smooth and straight. It's like this weird geometrical object at the end of the garden made of sand. And it's it's just bizarre. It's out of this world. It really is. And, you know, again, it's all designed to help to create a Zen like meditative uh, trance. And uh, so it's a really extraordinary place to be. We also spent some time in a, uh, on, a, on a walking path called the Philosopher's Walk, which is this lovely little walk through some of the back streets of Kyoto next to a little river. And the whole thing is covered in cherry blossom. Absolutely beautiful, uh, but also very crowded. Um, we did some shopping later that day for some uh, yukata, which are like these kind of traditional Japanese clothes. They're kind of like dressing gi- dressing gowns, a bit like um uh uh which, what what you call those things? Um kimonos, a bit like kimonos but more relaxed versions. And uh we we found like a little second-hand shop selling used yukata. And they were all in absolutely perfect condition. And we picked up a couple there. One for me, one for my one for my wife. Lovely souvenirs, lovely Japanese patterns, and not too expensive. Uh, we met one of my friends in London, someone I used to work with at the London School of English. By coincidence, she was also there. Um, and we, we sat down and had dinner together and we ate this stuff called Matsusaka beef. Uh, matsusaka beef is like a, a well-known form of beef in Japan and it's really tender. Apparently, it's more tender... Because it comes from virgin cows. Now I don't really understand this. I don't really understand how that works. But apparently, if the cows are virgins, the meat is is more tender. Why is that? I don't know. Is that because there's less trauma? The cow experienced less trauma in its life because it never had sex. Is that how that works? I don't know. Because I mean, for me, I don't know if that's the way these things work. I mean, do you? Are you more relaxed in generally in your life after you've had sex or? before you've had sex are virgins more relaxed or not because for me personally i remember that after i lost my virginity i was generally a lot more relaxed in my life Um, maybe that doesn't work for cows maybe it's the other way maybe having sex with a cow is a traumatic experience. I don't know. But anyway, the beef from these uh, cows was uh, Matsusaka beef, which is like super tender, delicious, because it comes from virgin cows. Obviously, that makes a difference. There's also some some beef in Japan. Um, I can't remember what it's called now. Uh, really, really amazing, like the best beef in the world. And it comes from cows which uh, drink beer. So the cows drink beer and they are massaged they 're like given massages, which kind of thinks kind of makes you think that sounds like a pretty good life, even though those cows do get killed and eaten. the life that they have it almost makes it worth it just drinking beer and getting massages all day must be pretty good um, that night we had we stayed in like a little guest house uh, with a hot bath, and I spent half an hour lying in the hot bath. It was a communal hot bath. But thankfully, there was almost no one in there. So it was far less public and far less embarrassing embarrassing than my hot bath experience in thailand if you remember that one uh we stayed in an absolutely tiny room it was like a little cupboard room enough for a bed and like space for you to stand and brush your teeth but that doesn't matter because we didn't need that much space the next day we went to another shrine early in the morning which called fushimi inari shrine which is a very important shinto shrine in southern kyoto and it's famous for its thousands of red tori gates uh, which cover a network of trails behind its main buildings the trails lead into the wooded forest of the mount uh, the sacred mount inari which stands at about 233 meters above kyoto and belongs to the shrine's grounds so fushimi inari is the most important of several thousands of shrines dedicated to inari the god the shinto god of rice and uh, foxes are thought to be Inari's messengers, resulting in many fox statues across the shrine grounds. Uh, Fushimi Inari Shrine has ancient origins, predating the capital's move to Kyoto in 794. Basically, behind uh, this shrine, there are these trails that go up to the top of the hill. And most of the way, these trails are covered by these red gates. There are thousands of these red Uh, Shinto tori gates. So tori gates are common in the entrance to shrines. You might have seen them, like big red gates. And these tori gates represent your movement from the normal world into the spirit world. And when you go through the tori, it's like you're going into the the sacred realm. And they are beautiful. And in this shrine, there are thousands of thousands of these gates in big rows. It's like walking through tunnels made from these gates. It's absolutely stunning. And the the gates are all donated to uh, the shrine by local businesses, and they have their names and the dates written uh, in sort of Chinese characters on the back of the, um, of the gates. It's amazing. You know, then we spent more time walking around. Uh, we took the Shinkansen back to Tokyo, back to, um, Tokyo, and we were met by our friend again. And, um, uh we uh were taken to our hotel in the meguro area and that evening is when i had my uh my gig my comedy show now you might remember that uh, a few episodes ago i announced this i said i'm going to be in japan i'm putting on a comedy show uh and uh you know here's the here are the details come now i didn't know what to expect i had no idea whether there would be anyone there you know uh, i didn't know i thought you know what's going to happen will there be just no people will there be loads of people Uh, I had no idea. All right. So um, I arrived at the place. The three of us arrived there uh, to the bar. And it's, you know, a fairly small little bar. Um, Normally, it fits about 30 or 40 people. Uh, I arrived and the place was absolutely packed. I mean, it was stuffed full of people. And, you know, I spoke to the owners. I spoke to Peter, who helped me to, to organize the show. And he was like, yeah, they're all here for you. They're all your fans. All your fans have taken over the building. And and so I went upstairs. I went upstairs and I had to go through the main room in order to get into the sort of performers preparation area, the backstage area. And so I went into the room. And honestly, it was so funny because when I arrived, like people were like, oh. like people were gasping, like, ah, oh, nuku!" nuku like that. And, you know, people are like, oh, like that, making all these noises. I felt like a celebrity, basically. People were like shocked and surprised and excited to see me. It was amazing. So I, I, you know, I was like, hello everyone. And they're like, oh, like that. Honestly, I went upstairs to get myself ready. And the show was basically about five performers and then me. Okay, and the the room was jam packed. I don't know how many people were in there. I don't, I don't know. It could have been sixty people, I guess, something like that. I mean, the the room was absolutely jam packed, uh, standing room only. In fact, there were some people who couldn't get in. They couldn't get in. So, if you were one of those people who couldn't get into the room, then I'm really sorry. I mean, I didn't know, um, you know, how many people would come. So, you know, we booked a fairly small room. It turned out to be totally full in fact too many people um and um in fact there were people sitting in the stairs who couldn't actually see what was going on but they were listening from the stairs you know there were that many people uh, so the show was like five performers and then me and uh, all these people in there honestly everyone was japanese well almost everyone there were a couple of people from different countries but mostly japanese people and they were all there to see me which was really amazing and so, you know, they, they, they listened to the other performers and, you know, some other comedians and it was funny and they laughed and stuff like that. And then it was time for me to take the stage. And uh, so, I you know, before going on, I was upstairs and I was speaking to the other comedians and st- stuff like that. And, and when I spoke to the other comedians, they were like, you know, oh my God, you know, can you stay? How long are you here? Let's arrange some other shows. This is amazing. Like they were just amazed that I'd managed to get so many people there, you know, because as a comedian or for comedians, the most important thing is to get an audience. So if you manage to fill a room, that's amazing. So they were really pleased that the room was full. Um, You know, there is a scene, a comedy scene in Japan, but it's mainly for expats in English. And this room uh, was absolutely full of Japanese people and a few others, and they were all there for me. So I, you know, I was walking around upstairs trying to get myself ready, trying to decide exactly what I was going to say, what my material was going to be. And I was listening to the reaction of the audience and the audience seemed absolutely lovely. But, you know, I did think they were mainly waiting for me. And so, you know, eventually it was time for me to to go on. Um, and I, I went on stage and I went on and the room was like, Way! like that, you know, it was amazing atmosphere. Everyone was so pleased to see me. And I felt very flattered. I felt like a celebrity or something. I ended up doing about 45 minutes of of comedy, a lovely audience, uh, all of them Lepsters. Uh, It was interesting for me to see uh, which bits of my material uh, were a success and which things didn't really work. You know, I, I sort of adapted a lot of my material that I normally do in Paris and tried to adapt it to the Japanese audience. And most of it went down very well. Some things just didn't work, though, I have to be honest. Like the bits that didn't work, were actually some of the film references. And mainly because these were films that I guess the audience didn't really know, and also films that have different titles in Japanese. So in my routine, I talk a little bit about Ratatouille, which is that story based in in Paris. It's a Pixar animation about a rat uh, that lives in Paris and it learns how to, you know, it can cook and it helps this guy to cook, you know, Ratatouille. So I talk about that. No one knew what Ratatouille was at all. I also did some jokes and material about Taken um, and uh, no one knew that either because I think, no, I guess no one understood it, which was kind of a surprise because I think, God, I talk about Taken so much on this podcast, that I was surprised that no one uh, no one knew it, um, so that didn 't work, and also did some stuff about Star Wars, which actually the Star Wars stuff worked okay um, now a lot of you know a lot of my routine is for a French audience and taken is actually quite specific to a French crowd because the film is set in paris um, also what was interesting to me is that there were some bits of my comedy routine that uh, that are not true you know like I say some things that are just supposed to be funny jokes and they're not really true and there were some of those things that my audience just took on face value they like they just took it all as being true and I had to say oh but you know that's not true that's, none of that is true that's, I'm just joking like for example some bits in my Star Wars routine about how my dad is an evil strict overbearing tyrant like Darth Vader You know, just making jokes about how how I'm Luke Skywalker and my dad is Darth Vader. Obviously, it's not true because my dad's a lovely guy. But it's just, you know, the the, the routine is about these parallels about my life and Star Wars. But, you know, um, other than that, you know, it went really, really well. And it was so much fun making my audience laugh face to face in Japan like that. And uh, uh, the audience especially liked some of the the, the bits I did about Japan. And I actually have a recording recording. I do have a recording of the uh, of, of the show. Uh, I'm not going to play the whole thing because a lot of that's just my material and I don't want to publish it. But there were some bits that were sort of uh, improvised moments or ad-libs. So I've now got about seven minutes of material which I'm going to play to you. Um, so just as an introduction to those bits, the, 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 the recording quality is not that great. So it might be difficult for you to hear everything. Um, but if you turn up the volume, you should be okay. So... Yeah, these are just a few clips of ad-libs. So no actual material, just some improvised moments. And let me just sort of explain a few things in advance. So you'll hear me go, oh my God, this is is crazy. This is like the... This is like the Tokaido line, so in 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 Tokyo, the Tokaido Line is famous for being a very busy line and and the the trains on the Tokaido line are often completely packed. So what I was saying there is that the the room was totally packed basically so that 's what that means. This is like the tokaido line there was uh, There was a listener in the audience called Hiroshi Maruyama who is a long-term listener to this podcast. Hello, Hiroshi. You're probably listening to this. Now, Hiroshi Maruyama is a bit of a podcast legend. I've mentioned him on this podcast a few times before, and he's been listening to the podcast for a long time. So, Hiroshi was actually in the room, and you'll hear him sort of shouting to me, and, Luke, Luke, it's me. It's Hiroshi. So, you know, that's what that's about. I've told you already about the the sound here which is like that funny sound that Japanese people make, here and haw as well, which is like, you know, used to express surprise or sometimes to express uh, like shock about sort of negative things as well. There's that. Um, I think you're going to hear me say gets as well. Now, gets is uh, a weird uh, thing that when I used to live in Japan, there was this comedian who became, suddenly became incredibly famous. And his whole routine was to point his fingers and go, gets, right? Gets. Now, when I used to live in Japan, you could do that to anyone, gets, and they would all start laughing. Uh, But I never understood what gets was. And I think gets lasted about five minutes. You know, it was was famous for five minutes, and then after that, just forgotten about. Because, you know, Japan is a place of trends, trendy things things become very popular and then they just get forgotten and gets is one of those things now i don't i still don't understand it imagine pointing with both your hands with your thumbs raised and saying gets like that what does that mean i've no idea what that means anyway i talked about that on stage so that's what gets means um also, uh, talking about France a little bit, and you hear Hiroshi Maruyama say, Yeah, I went to France. and I was like, what's it like? And he said, there's lots of poos. And, you know, it's kind of a stereotype. It's kind of true. There is quite a lot of dog poo on the streets in, in France. And so that, you know, then led me to talk about how uh, the experience of Japanese people who go to France. And they they like, oh, wow, it's beautiful. It's like Amelie. It's so romantic. And then, oh, there's like poo on the street. And also making fun of the way in which uh, Japanese people can't say no, as I said before. Just like, instead of saying no, they kind of go, ah, like that. So that's just a little bit of background to help you understand um, uh, some of the uh, stuff in the routine that I'm now going to play you, which you're going to hear now. It's about seven minutes worth of stuff. Here we go.
0: All right, lovely evening. We've had a good time. And now, without further ado, let's hear it. For Luke. Hello, hello. Oh wow. hello everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. It's ridiculous, isn't it? This is this is like the Tokaido line. <laughs> hello. hello. Hello, everybody. Back. Please play jingles. 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 Ready,
1: ready. Can you do the music? <laughs> do, 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 do. You're listening to Luke the Podcast. <laughs> For more information, visit
0: www. <laughs> www. For more information, visit teacherloop.com. Okay. Good. And what? Yeah, I talkie. You know, okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this. Hello, everyone. Hello. This show is uh, sponsored by I here. <laughs> it's a Fantastic service that you can yeah. use to get one-to-one lessons <laughs> with actual native English speakers on the internet. You can do it from the toilet. <laughs> Yeah, you could do. Uh, hello. Everyone's actually standing up. This is amazing. It's, it's great to be here. Oh, it's so oh, good. It's good. so good to be in Japan. Hello there. Hello. I recognise you. How many ninjas are there in this room?
0: Big blue. Just listening silently. Never revealing yourselves. Uh, who the hell are you? you. <laughs> who are you? Hello. Hiroshi. Hiroshi He's a person!
1: He's, he's not a ninja, this man. He's definitely not a ninja by any scripture. He's been listening to this podcast for longer than I've been doing it. <laughs> I've been doing the podcast for eight years, you she's been listening to it for ten years. <laughs> That. I understand that there are some people are, uh, on the stairs right now yeah. who can't see this. They're listening to Luke's English podcast. Aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> That's basically what's happening here. Uh, a lot of English words actually come from French, right? You know this? So a lot of our words are actually French words that arrived in the language maybe about a thousand years ago. So France will ask for its words back. You know, like, for example, the word table, which is originally a French word. Like, yeah, nearly. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: What, what is that weird noise that you make? <laughs>
1: Sorry? There's, there's other noises you make as well, too, which we find strange in the rest of the world. Are you the only country that goes, Hey? It's yours, isn't it? It's yours. You've also got, "haw. <laughs> (키) one else does that (laughs) 'eh, that? that?" (laughs) (laughs) when I was in Japan 15 years ago the the biggest things in Japan were this
0: 'eh,
1: massive now everyone's like what what's that (laughs) 15 years ago that and the other thing that was huge when I was here before, which no one knows about now, was this. gets. <laughs>
0: oh,
1: yeah. I never understood that. Your country confuses me. I don't understand gets. I still don't understand that. But I, I, live, in, I live in France, right? And, um, you know, uh, has anyone been to France? Been to France? Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, been to France, yes? Yeah, all right, Hiroshi, been to France. Once? Yeah,
0: once. Once? Okay. How
1: how did how was it?
0: Yeah, there are lots of poo's.
1: There are lots of poos. It's true. Uh, It's true. It's true. uh, (laughs) There are lots of poos. Yeah, You know, uh, it's it's like the opposite of Japan, France. It is. It's like the opposite of Japan. Because in Japan, everyone's like really sort of super polite. Yes, you know, you, you, you can't say no in Japan. It's like, eh, that's no. That's as far as you go.
0: Eh, as as you go. Yes. Yes. No problem. problem. No. It's like, yeah. Don't twist me!
1: Don't break me! Or is it In France it's like, no, non. non. Ah, c'est pas possible. C'est, c'est compliqué. You know, and you're like, excuse me, what time is it? Uh, non. Uh. C'est pas possible, ça. Eh. <laughs> yeah, so, a lot of Japanese people go to France and they're like, oh, it's going to be like Amélie. You know, ah. flowers and romance oh, okay. and beautiful colours and they come and they're like oh look at the bu-
0: beautiful buildings look at all the colours oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's true, it's true. Is, there, is there
1: any Russians in the room?
0: Yeah. yes back
1: the room. two Russians, Russians. Wow. I, I like the fact that you were both on time tonight yeah. <laughs> many of you were Russian to get there. <laughs> The Russian joke. <gem. laughs> still, still only a small portion of the. You want me
0: to
1: do Obama? <laughs> it's not very good. It's not very good though. It's not really ready yet. What do you want me to say uh, uh, as Obama? Because I've been, I've been practicing an Obama impression, I don't know if you've noticed. Eight years, it took me eight years. It's too late now. He's gone, he's on holiday. He is, right, he's still on holiday. I imagine Obama in the morning is like, Today we will go to the beach. And then we will stay on the beach. <laughs> You, my two bars, you can go to the (laughs) sea. And then come back onto the beach. (laughs) It's basically that's it. It's like... Thank you Ah, you, you so much. You're welcome. (laughs) So uh, that's it then. Thanks so much for coming to the show. Honestly, it's really great to see all of you. Thank you very much for coming. Yeah, you enjoy it. You enjoy the jokes. so you heard there in that routine that actually uh there were a few requests from the audience someone at the, the beginning was like play the jingle you've got to do the jingle so i had to do the jingle you know like you're listening to luke's english podcast for more information visit teacherluke.co.uk i had to do that and someone also said italki so i had to do the italki promo as well and there were some requests for impressions like uh, barack obama uh, there was at one point someone shouted out Hobson's Choice as well, uh, which you didn't hear, but someone did shout out Hobson's Choice. Um, I wish that I'd said bye, 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 bye. At the end, I didn't do that, which I regret. Um, but then what was a, what was the most amazing thing, right, was that after the show, uh, there was a huge queue of people who wanted to talk to me. They wanted to get my autographs uh, they wanted to get selfies with me, and they wanted to talk to me and shake my hand. It was really, actually, very moving, because like I felt like a celebrity. It was like I was sort of Johnny Depp or David Beckham or something. This huge queue of people, everyone waiting patiently to talk to me, and people brought me gifts, and they were shaking my hands and asking for my autograph. I was, like, signing my autograph. One person asked me to sign the back of their mobile phone, and I signed that. You know, I was like, someone had a copy of English Grammar in Use, and I signed that. It was absolutely amazing. It really was. Um, If you were there at the show, I just want to say thank you so much for your sincere messages and thank you so much for just being so nice to me and asking for my autograph it was very flattering indeed and you made me feel like a celebrity uh for the evening uh it was incredible um absolutely amazing um and you know i've got a big bag of gifts thank you so much if you if you gave me a gift what i i did actually open those gifts uh immediately that evening uh, but I put them back in their bags and stuff. I've got the gifts here with me. And what I would like to do is record a video of me opening the gifts again, just so I can sort of say thank you to you properly. Um, you know, that's all I've got to say, really. The rest of the trip was, you know, stuff like, you know, other stuff in Tokyo, which, you know, you probably don't need to know about. I think that this is probably a t- the moment for me to end this episode. Just thanks so much for listening. Uh, I just want to give a big shout out to all my Japanese listeners. Thank you. I also want to give a shout out to. My listeners from although from all the other countries, uh, you know, I I love all of my listeners. You're absolutely brilliant. In my experience, people who listen to this podcast and who really enjoy it are generally just really nice people. Whenever I meet you, you're always really really nice, and I appreciate it. You know, people write incredibly uh, uh, complimentary things on on my website, and you know, I don't let it go to my head. You know, I I really don't. Uh, I I understand that. Um, I shouldn't let it go to my head and I, I'm not letting it go to my head. Uh, but, you know, when uh, people say sincere things like some of the things that people said to me uh, after the show, uh, you know, then, you know, I, I appreciate it. I find it uh, flattering and moving. And so thank you very much. Um, you know what? Just at the end of this episode, I'm going to play you uh, a song. And uh, if you don't want to hear me singing, then stop listening now. Okay. So if, if singing, if me singing is not your cup of tea, then you can just easily stop listening, and that's no problem. Uh, but this is a special song uh, for Japan, and this one was written by John Lennon, recorded in 1973, and it's all about like the connection between him and Japan, which is really about his love for Yoko Ono, his Japanese wife. And it's also about connections between Liverpool and Tokyo, 3,000 miles away, over the oceans, Uh, east and west combine, uh, and love uh, sort of makes the world go round. Uh, It's a beautiful song. I hope you enjoy it. And thank you for listening for Luke's English Podcast. Um, All right, so here's the song. And I'm going to say bye-bye-bye, and then then you'll hear the song and then the jingle at the end. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye-bye-bye-bye-bye.
0: Liverpool To Tokyo What a way to go From distant lands One woman, one man Let the four winds blow Three thousand miles Over the ocean Three thousand light years From the land of the rising sun Love has opened up my eyes Love Cheers From the land of the rising sun East is east And west is west The twain shall meet East is west And west is east let it be complete. Three thousand miles over the ocean. Three thousand light years from the land of the morning star. And light years from the land of the morning star.
1: For listening to Luke's English podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince.